Today on Time Out Coaching, we have a true legend of British coaching. He is a coach who has won at every level in both the male and female game, coached the Great Britain women's team, was the performance director for Great Britain basketball, and is currently the director of basketball at Barking Abbey Academy and head coach of BA London Lions. I'm pleased to welcome coach Mark Clark. Yeah, hi, Tony. Thanks for having me. Coach, great, great to have you as well. Um, you know, really an incredible career so far. And there's so much to, to discuss along the way with so many important people that are probably you've touched and you've been involved with. But let's go right back to the start. You know, a quick introduction to how you, were, you got involved in basketball and some of those key people that had some influence on you um, and, uh, you know, at those early days to start coaching basketball. Uh, well, my initial introduction was like a lot of guys, I reckon it's, you know, you, you, you pick a basketball up at school, no great, I would never claim to be any great shake as a, as a player. Um, but then I went to, um, went to Borough Road College and I was fortunate at the, at the time that Paul Stimson was there, Mick Bett was there, uh, some guys in my, uh, my sort of uh, peer group like uh, Colton Lee and, and Steve Ball that were already at Crystal Palace. So I, one, I got introduced to the game in a, in a great environment, um, you know, because Borough Road was a, just a, you know, super PE college as such. Um, but I got, I, I went straight from just being a, a basketball fan into the opportunity to get involved at Crystal Palace. Um, I'd started to coach the, uh, the women's team at, uh, at, at Borough Road and already got uh, a, a real big buzz out of coaching. And uh, when... Uh, when Paul and, uh, and a guy called Mike Wildman, who was uh, the women's coach at uh, Crystal Palace at the time, uh, asked me uh, if I wanted to go down. It was like, yeah, I was, I was there right away. And I, I became a bit of a basketball junkie in the sense that uh, I was doing the junior women at, at Crystal Palace. But if practice starts at uh, six, that's when they got the gym at Palace. Um, I was there at six and I didn't leave until 10, 1030 when the men had finished practice or someone else had finished practice. Um, because at that time they had... <clears throat> You know, like Danny Palmer's a great teacher of the game. So I had the chance to watch Danny Palmer coach. Um, Roy Packham was just, a, is, as, as people know, is a phenomenal junior coach. And then I was also out there watching a load of British guys that could play. And um, so right from the, the get-go, I was looking at European basketball. I was looking at great British players playing with quality import players and, and some great coaching. So I, it was almost like a, a crash course in, in, in basketball at the highest levels. And I, I was just like a sponge. Um, and then what? right place, right time, got the chance to coach on the, on the, on the women's program. And uh, then again, right place, right time, the opportunity to be a head coach way before probably I was ready. Um, and then David Last and, and Terry Doherty, who, who ran Crystal Palace, were, showed, showed a lot of faith in the fact that we decided to go all English uh, with the women and we, and we won everything. And um, so it was a very much like a whirlwind if you want to start, but it was like, I, I just don't think you can ever take on board and. a, a, a too many influences at that stage when you're trying to formulate your own ideas. I was going to ask in that timeline, um, where is, where are you to where Mark Dunning and Jimmy Rogers were coming into the crystal palace process? Were you just slight, slightly after them or it was all at the time, same time? Pretty much the same time because, um, my first year at, uh, at crystal palace, um, was the year before Danny Palmer came in as the, well, Bill Sweet and Danny Palmer came in. I was much more of a, a fan that was just beginning to 
get an opportunity to work there in, the, in, a, in, a, in a very new junior women's program because junior women's basketball at that point, there was no national league as such. Um, and so at the same, it was an amazing time at Crystal Palace because in addition to the people like uh, Roy Packham that were already there, uh, when Danny came in and had to then look for a coaching staff because Bill Sweek, who was going to be the head coach, um, stayed with, with as the European guy for Adidas. Um, you had Mark come in, Jimmy Rogers was there. I mean, even uh, Wally Williams and guys on the, on the team management, all those guys were like so um, good at what they did that, um, I mean, you even had the guru of stats there in John Atkinson. Um, every, anybody that, that wanted to be anything within basketball at that point, Crystal Palace was such a profile for all sorts of reasons that it was, uh, it was an amazing place to be. You know, you, you, you just reeled off a few basketball like legends of names, you know, Jimmy and, Jimmy and Mark. Um, that they, they, they are basketball as such. They're basketball in the history of the game. Mm. And uh, I'm, I mean, there's that link as well with the Borough Road to Crystal Palace. I mean, that's a that's an incredible link as well um, with all of the both the players and also the coaches that have gone through there. Um, are you at this time? So, um, you, I guess you know, like in any of these great clubs that have been put together, the coaching staffs are, are they are they are you talking to each other? Are you exchanging ideas? And and what are you? What do you start at that early part of your career? What are you basing your coaching um, philosophy and how you're teaching the game? What are you basing it on and, and how were you playing at that time? Well, I think uh, Danny Palmer uh, at that stage, uh, I think was um, very different to a number of, to many of the other coaches that were in the game. He, he taught the game and, and, and that, that fitted with Crystal Palace's uh, ethos of younger players. So seeing seeing Danny coach and having the, having access to someone like Danny at that stage uh, of his career and, and, and Roy, which was very uh, Roy and, and Danny, very American based in, in terms of wanting to play defense, wanting to get up the floor, wanting to pressure everything, wanting to run. And, the, and as uh, as a young coach in particular, that's an exciting way to coach the game. Also, it covers up some of the cracks you have as a young coach, because, you know, the, as I've gone through the finer points, if that the technical detail you have to get into, um, you know, quick results, uh, quick quick outcomes, etc. But most of it based on the fact that, that Danny Palmer and, and people at Crystal Palace taught the game of basketball, so that they taught players to play, and they taught players right from from that stage to let players make decisions. And uh, and I think that was I've I've stayed with that ethos throughout. You know, it's about giving players tools and giving players the ability to make their own decisions. And right from that stage, you're know, basing it on trying to play defense, basing it on trying to um, you know get up the floor and create opportunity, and and try and control what you're ha allowing your opponent to do, was very much uh, the ethos there. And you only have to look at the results that that Danny had in Europe, where you know Crystal Palace go and beat Real Madrid, and largely because they ran a, a really nice three-quarter court zone trap that generated a, a bit of a uh, gave them a lead and enough breathing space, but um, that was where the basis, it always started from trying to keep the tempo high, whether it be in the half court or the full court, trying to play defense and generate advantage from your defense, uh, always based upon giving players tools to make decisions. That's great. And then just the, my other last question is uh, on this, this kind of uh, time period. Um, what was the own the catalyst to be part of the women's game was it just simply that you would be coached the women's team at borough road 
um, or what, 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 what was that? Or you were just feeling that like, I was just a coach. I'm a coach. Uh, I just happened to be coaching women's basketball at this moment. That was definitely the, the, the point I was, I, I wanted to be a coach. Um, the opportunity to coach at the highest, the higher level at that point in time was with, was, was with Crystal Palace's women's team, um, you know, to, to coach and take teams into European Cup, you know, to coach WICB, et cetera. You were exposed to, you know, the highest level of coaching. You know, I was, I went to Jones Cup in 80, 1984 and, and, and was, was the assistant coach when we played the US Olympic team. And it was like you know, that, that, that opportunity to coach at that level uh, it, so basically, yeah, uh, it's be a coach and then look at the team opportunities you have to go and coach within and, and, and take those and make the best out of those. Mm. And then, and then lastly, apart from Danny, um, Roy, you know, is there in this time period, are you, is there anyone else that you're looking to that you were impressed and that kind of impressed you? Did you, were you thinking America, you know, what, what, what was your thought process there? Well, there's, there's two, two parts to that because um, I don't think anyone coaching at that stage wouldn't have been influenced by, you know, some of the legends from the States. Um, as much as the, you know, the information you can get from them as dealing with people as opposed to just the X's and O's, you can get X's and O's from lots of different sources, but, you know, getting access to, to, to reading the books at that stage because that was pretty much most of the ways you would get it. But, you know, I was lucky. I got, the, I, yeah, I got access because of some of the young players we had to have coaches come visit and want to recruit players. So, I mean, legends, you know, reading John Wooden's books, et cetera, sort of formulate some opinions. So people of that ilk, if you want, like true legends of, of the game. Um, and then in, 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 in the UK, there was, I don't, I still don't think we give our coaches enough credit for the level they were at. Because when, when I was at Crystal Palace, trying to compete in, in the women's league at that point, and then you had to go up against uh, like uh, Avon Cosmetics in Northampton. You had to go up against John Collins. John Collins is as good a coach as I've ever coached against at any level. I, I mean, the guy with John's knowledge is, is second to none. Um, they were playing in Europe as well. So their exposure to, to different things was, and they had quality players. So you, I, that, I, I would, I've gone up against coaches subsequently that, you know, you can put on the same sort of like platform if you want at that level. But um, it was hard to go up against someone like John. And then I worked with him in the Olympic team in 88 as his assistant. And you know, they, those guys took, took, took the national team to, um, to a, a top 12 final. Before, you know, we all get excited about going to Eurobasket. It only used to be 12 teams. And John Collins and, and Roy Burt at the time took, took England women to the top 12. Um, so John was, uh, John was always a target because they were the team that you wanted to beat for me. They were the team that, uh, and the program that you wanted to beat because John just didn't run a team, he ran a program. Um, so the aspiration, the mountain to climb was an incredibly tough mountain to climb because you were going up against a coach who was as prepared as any coach, as I say, as I've been up against. Yeah. And just lastly, Crystal Palace, like kind of era, um, some of the standout players that, that you coached, um, I mean, there were, you know, immense amount, but just to name a few. Andrew Congreve is the best basketball player I've, I've, I've ever coached uh, by a sizable distance. I think she's one of the best players of a time. She, she's one of the best players in the world in a peak. Um, uh, I coached Carol Paris and Carol Paris was just the Carol Paris and Andrew Congreve quotes Carol Paris as the player that she would like, look up to the most. 
and they were just uh, she, she her her attitude and making the most of what she had was just phenomenal. So they were they they those two had a great group of players at Crystal Palace. You know, like Tracy Killingly and uh, Lynn Boinke played there. Obviously, Claire <laughs> Claire was there, so I can't miss Claire out because I think Claire gets understated a bit with as a six three centre with great skill set. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was a it was a fun time at Crystal Palace at that point, and uh, players always make it fun. You know. Good players, motivated players, make it fun. Um, I, I, I know that Andrea did the, the the hoops fix, but again, you know, this comes back down to one of the reasons I started the podcast and the historical aspects of our game. And I'm pretty much sure that she's not, you know, got the her due of where she really was. You know, like you said, she wasn't just the best in the country. She was one of the best in the world. And when the WNBA started, Tony, like she was one of the, the starters on a, what, I think what was an 18 WNBA. So, uh, when the expansion draft happened, she was the one of the, one of the first players that they moved, and so yeah, absolutely, it's crazy. Um, what's the next pro, the next time set after Crystal Palace, and and how did that uh, happen? Well, I, I had a I had a brief uh, time with Jimmy Rogers at Brixton, which was uh, again, I've, I've been lucky. I, people who run organisations that have me work with them. I, I went from Crystal Palace as a great club. I went to, to work with Jimmy Rogers, and, and I, I don't I don't need to add to what other people have said about Jimmy because Jimmy, what Jimmy has uh, done for basketball in this country is uh, phenomenal. But again, you get a different input from a coaching perspective. Again, he wants you know if you the Jimmy Rogers, if you, you know, if you if you're good enough, you're old enough type stuff. The young players and and pushing players and developing players and again giving players opportunities was something that that Jimmy and Brixton did as well as anybody. So I had that. A great one season, but and then I got into national teams. So I, I I then went and worked national team for from eighty after I finished with John Collins in eighty eight with the Olympic team. I coached both the seniors and the junior England women's team. We won the Commonwealth Championships in ninety one, won the gold medal there when it was just a separate championships, um, and then finished with the national team in ninety five. At, the, at that time, I'd also like I needed to coach on a weekly basis, on a regular basis. So Roy Birch took me to Ware, and we did some nice, really nice things at Ware. Another good situation with with good people. Um, so that national team break then followed into finding myself with with again coming into contact with other great coaches because I worked with Billy Mims for for three seasons at the, at Leopards. That's right. Um, In- my my big my possibly my <coughs> one of my best times, but also one of my I had the chance to work with Kevin Cadle at, at Kingston before I went to Brixton. So you know, it's not a bad choice. You know, I'll go and work with Jimmy Rogers at Brixton. I'll go and work as Kevin's assistant at Kingston. Um, yeah, they're, they're good options to have. Um, and then obviously when I was with Billy at, at the Leopards, the great rival we was with, with Towers, which brought me in contact with Kevin again. So I've just been pretty blessed with the way that I've come into contact with some great coaches. And I would hope I'd taken a piece out of all of these people. But the time at Leopards was Again, Billy Mims has a as a as an as an entertaining way of, of pushing, and he gets. Some, I don't think he, Billy ever gets. I think Billy's people see Billy's teams as teams that want to run and score, but I think um, in in uh, yeah, the first time he won the BBL, we were the second-rated team in terms of field goal percentage against. I mean, I'll take some credit for that because I did I did a lot of that work for for Billy, but um, Billy's just a flat-out good great coach and and you don't then he goes and wins with less talent in other teams that just shows Absolutely. what you know a coach yeah. he, he can and the way he can make 
players believe they're the best player in the world at times. It's it's an art form, and, and Billy's management of people is uh, is is unbelievable. So at that time, um, some would say that that was the heyday of uh, professional basketball in this country, or maybe the second coming after you know the, the the Crystal Palace type of era and stuff. But certainly, you know, great sky coverage and incredible crowds and stuff. Um, you know, just talk a little bit about Billy and, uh, and his philosophy. Um, would it be would it would I be right in saying maybe slightly ahead of his time, you know, with the way that he played, with with the with you know free flowing, you know, the tempo, um, you know, he he was a player's coach. I think you're absolutely right in that. Yeah. You know, you put those players in the best position to to succeed. Um, what were some of those other takeaways? You've really given me most of them, but what? Uh, what I think with Billy, and I think unless you're involved and you're up close, you know, people see these you know, great players, like, as I say, up-tempo, but Billy's attention to detail offensively. Um, and, and you'll look at the, you know, you'll have a number of sets, quite a lot of what people would, you know, some people would say their entries, some people would say their sets. But all those sets are designed to give the talent he has the most opportunity to, to excel. So, you know, John White's a great basketball player. I mean, he proved that here, but he also improved it with his performances when he went and played in, you know, Lithuania and France and stuff. You, know, you don't play at higher levels, and he was still a, he's a, just a great scorer. He's a great player. But Billy put him in areas of the floor um, that gave him an advantage. And if you give someone like John White advantage, he's going to he's going to he's going to hurt teams. And so Billy would create with his sets and 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 with his the way he wanted to play the game. Um, it wasn't just run up and run and gun. I mean, it was like very much, there's a lot of attention to, to detail in terms of how you would run um, your set and how you would, where you would get John White or where you would get Eric Burks the ball, which has, I think to an extent is a little bit, is, is very, at times very NBA-like in terms of mm. getting the right people the ball at the right times and people understanding that sort of uh, responsibility. But he, Billy's attention to detail offensively was, was exceptional. And there, there, there's no, you can't half bake anything. Uh, and Billy was big on not half baking. You know, if you're going to execute something, execute it properly. So we would spend time breaking things down, getting, getting the, the actual, we want, we want to get the ball into these areas and then letting people, again, letting players make decisions. Um, so yeah, and then the people, the players then saw that Billy, you know, as a coach, Billy was actually giving them the best opportunity to be successful. So they really bought into the fact, well, this is my turn almost. This is our option. This is what, and then when it was someone else's, they would, they would then execute their part to, to help their teammate. And uh, yeah, Billy was, Billy's attention to detail was exceptional. Mm. And you, um, at this time, you were, you were, you were teaching at this time or involved no, in, local, in government. No, local government. You were local government. Yeah. yeah. And um, it was, but yeah, finished work, it, go and work with Billy Mims. But it was, but it was a professional semi, you know, it was really a professional environment at that time, a very professional environment. So you were what practicing pretty much every day? Uh, yeah, for, for it was, there was midweek games. So I pretty much if, uh, if I got one, one day off from, from practice, because I, if uh, my wife will tell you, Claire will tell you that, um, she didn't see me a lot. Um, and, uh, uh, and I, I wouldn't have been able to do it without the support that she gave and accepted that sort of thing. But no, straight out of, we would practice at six most nights um, because again, one or two of the players had jobs as well. But uh, 
yeah, we were, we were pretty much going every day, midweek games. I mean, as you say, that was a professional time for the league because you had some great owners in big facilities with some great coaches. I mean, geez, I mean, if you look at that era, there were some coaches in the game. Well, you, you were coaching at the time uh, at Towers as well. And, and there's, there's a lot of English coaches in the scenario. And then beyond that, then, you know, obviously you, you, you were at Everton and places like that and Newcastle and those places. You were talking that, that that's proper pro basketball as it was then. I mean, you know, the time that you were involved in, though, still, ultimately, you had, you know, people like Billy being very successful um, just after Billy. Mike Taylor's been super successful yeah. with a Polish oh, national yeah. team. And then you have two of the, the biggest alumni who are now NBA head coaches, you know, one's exactly. been a champion. So, yeah, yeah, there was some pretty good talent at that time. Uh, Absolutely. In the league. Yeah. And uh, I never felt that. Um, that's what the, my what probably my biggest criticism at this moment at the BBL is that, you know, it's just that uh, I don't know if the coaches are challenged on a daily basis, you know, and, um, you know, that's something that they, you know, I mean, again, we can go into why or what um, another day, but it, it's um, something that really needs to be addressed because that's the way the league can improve. And, and like mm -hmm. I say, you know, if you've got people like I never you know, my goal was always to beat Chris and Nick. Um, and, you know, you knew it was a big thing because you knew that these guys were elite coaches even back then. Um, yeah. And there were and there were many others, you know, at that time. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting one. So after the Leopards, um, what was the next uh, the next stop after that? Well, I, I went um, I went back to where? Uh, after Leopards, it was just, it was more of a, a career time thing. Um, but then at the same time, Red Miller Turner was uh, really doing some good things uh, in the early, like 2000s about trying to sort out England basketball. So she asked me to go and, uh, I mean, we've had these conversations, call it an assistant coach, call it a consultant, call it whatever. So she asked me to go and help um, with uh, some of the, the women's age group programs. So I ended up with an age, helping with an age group program that had Georgia Jones on it, uh, Azania Stewart, uh, which was a very talented under 16 group that just came up short because we ended up, you know, just one of those things where second best team in Europe at that stage, uh, national team wise was in the B division because the team before hadn't been. So like they missed out on promotion. Uh, and then falling out of that, uh, Great Britain started and then I, you know, I applied for that position and, and, and unfortunately got that position. After sure. I, I, I assisted uh, Branny Bizzani in the uh, 06 uh, Commonwealth Games when, uh, when, we, when they got the bronze medal. Just before and we get coming on, out of that, yeah. just before we get on to the Great Britain situation, um, when did you start to conceive Barking Abbey and the Academy? Because uh, yeah, Dan, Dan went to, Dan got the opportunity to go to Estudiantes and I, I was sitting there with our 13 year old son going, well, what's the alternatives? And there was none. Um, you, you had just started doing something at, at Hackney where you were getting kids the opportunity to play more. Um, but so there would, was nothing that would have been, that would have been a 2004 ish. Yeah. 
four or five. Yeah. And then obviously yeah. I, I did have, uh, I actually have just interviewed Bob Martin and it hasn't gone up, but I do give credit to Craig and Bob um, yep. for East Durham because that was truly the first real academy yeah. in our country. Um, yeah. And I'm sure you took some kind of uh, sort, you know, something about, you might, you would have seen that, but there was just, there wasn't anything you know, with anything close oh. to that. No, and the thing about it was uh, you had the situation that was beginning in Manchester with the Amici Centre, which, you know, there's the, there was a facility, um, but there was nothing. When, when you're sitting down with the guys in the Studiantes and Real Madrid and, 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 and various clubs in Europe, and well, we'd like your son to come and be in our junior programme, uh, there was no choice to, to be made. Um, but then when he went, which was a huge upheaval just for a young man and a, young, and a family as such, um, we then took the opportunity, or I took the opportunity, if you want. I, I, I spent a lot of time, obviously, visiting Dan, but a lot of time just in, um, in very cold sports halls. Uh, and I know at the same time, John Collins was spending time in Valencia, and there was a few people that, you know, trying to look at what was going on. Right. And um, then I went and we, uh, then I went and uh, looked at what was happening at the Sabonis School in Lithuania, and then had the opportunity that... Bark and Abbey, uh, the sports director at Bark and Abbey and the head teacher were, again, all about giving kids the opportunity. So again, I'm fortunate to come across people who were like-minded in that sense. And so back with Phil Ryder, who's the director of sport, asked if I, if I knew anybody that wanted to set up a basketball academy because they'd, they'd set something up for soccer. And it was like, yes, I do, I'll do it. Um, and so, but I said, if we're going to do it, we have to do it like this. And, you know, so the workouts during the day, the, the sort of, you know, 15 to 20 hours of basketball every week integrated into their academics. That was me pulling together things from, from Spain and the club system, from the Sabonis school, where it was literally, a, that, that epitomized the word academy. You, know, you literally were teaching people to play basketball to become pros. It was, a, it, was a, it, was, it was done in the same way, like Lithuanians, like they do with their coaching. It's a, it's a, it's a job. You've got to study to do your job as well as you can. And, and we took all those things and then put them together in Barking and got the support of the school. And again, Radmila Turner was really supportive from a basketball England perspective. It's one of the, one of the times I can, I can you know, and I, I'm not sure if it was the organization or it was Radmila, but Radmila did, did, did lots of things that just made setting up Barking a lot easier because there was a lot of support. And she helped us run the international tournament that we, we started where we were bringing people in. Um, so yeah, uh, that was the Bark. Barking was my way, I think, of saying, that we have to find a way in this country to get kids the chance to play and be as, because every hour they were getting week hours, every week they were going hours and hours and hours less than the guys in Europe. Mm. And so we had to, otherwise we were always going to be running uphill. So, and I think I've got from setting up Barking, we then, we then helped, we had, you know, with, with Jackson at Cola, with you know, the Charmwood situation, with, with four or five of the other academies, we helped them set it up, the funding model and everything else. So now we've got, I think now, the national teams, the junior national teams now, and the senior national team, if you look at some of the guys on the senior national team, are starting to you know, really reap the benefit of, uh, of those academies. And uh, I don't think that, uh, I don't think our governing bodies necessarily sell that link enough and give the academies enough um, support or credibility for what they've done that is now being seen with the performances of um, the senior teams in getting to you know, latter stages. I mean, I think there was uh, 
there was one time, there was one year where Barkin had like a quarter of the roster when they played New Zealand, the senior men. You know, guys like Teddy, Orokafor, et cetera, coming through Barkin and other academies now. Um, that's huge in the impact that it's had on the sort of national teams. Look at the, the age group teams that are now playing in A division. That's, that's, that's good coaching by the coaches, but it's the, it's the work the academies do day in, day out. You know, Neil Hopkins, all those, all those guys are just doing a great job day in, day out with kids. I'm going to come back to that point of the, the, the one you just said about, you know, the governing body and that we'll come back towards the end of that. Um, just, just taking it back. What, obviously we talk in our country about you, we can either go West or, or East, you know, East or West, whichever way you want to look at where we are, you can either go towards America or you can go towards Europe. What um, made you start thinking about Europe? Was it, being seen those days with Crystal Palace, uh, then at Northampton and all of these other teams playing in Europe and having that experience with the national teams. Um, what was the thing that started drawing you to the European game and the way that the game was being played there? Uh, initially, it was very much that the perception was that Eastern Europe in particular uh, taught players the, the fundamentals so well, and then players could make decisions. Um, and I, I, do, I do think that, that that was the basis of, of the decision that I made in terms of my, my sort of way of looking at the game. But then when we brought, we brought in, an, um, we had the Croatian national team coach and we had a, a Dejan Mišević from Slovenia who had him and worked with us for a couple of years. And, and to an extent, and speaking to the guys in Spain, also got a little bit... Um, they got, they got very much into that view that this was about teaching players to play. But then when you actually dig a little deeper, they just drill things so well and get into the real finer detail of the game and players understand the detail of the game. So therefore can make more informed decisions and, and look like it's a very natural thing that they've got the fundamentals down to a T and they get the reads from, uh, from the defense down to a T. It's, but it's, it's about, I go back to my Billy Mims, it's about attention to detail. Yeah. And I think what we were lacking, and, and to, our, to an extent I still think we do lack, do lack. Yep. Is, is the fact that when we're teaching young kids in particular to play, we too often, especially in, 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 in some junior club basketball, and, and this is largely down to the amount of time that coaches don't have to work with players, but we're coaching kids to, to play and win in junior competitions as opposed to coaching kids to become basketball players, the winning looks after itself almost. Mm. So your young player is being taught how to play when they become a senior, as you would in any profession, not how to necessarily win at under 14 level. And I think that my biggest take at that time from what was going on in, so when I, I would literally go and sit for six hours in a gym uh, in, in Madrid and I'd watch like under 14 play like the senior team play. Yeah, they don't, they don't, they don't make as many threes. They don't, um, they're not as successful in terms of points, but their spacing, uh, the way they stretch the floor, the way and the things that they are being encouraged to discover in, in terms of playing the game is how you would have to play as a senior. Um, and I, whereas I think our, our kids are almost were at that point in particular were um, being told like, well, this is how, we're going to win this game by doing this. 
So, you know, your big kid on the inside not being taught how to play is an extreme example, but because he was big at 14, he was able to win. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's that, that scenario. And I, and, I'm, and I didn't, I wasn't close enough to, to US high school basketball. And I wasn't close enough to college basketball. But then the biggest indication I got is the amount of influence you then saw going into US college basketball of like European influences. So they, if it was, you know, if almost it was, if the, if the US college system and, and some of the pro stuff was beginning to understand that, hey, you had to be able to shoot the ball and you had to be able to handle the ball. It wasn't just about, you know, playing one-on-one, et cetera. Um, that almost like reinforced that decision that, or the view I had, you know, teach people how to play as they're going to play as pros, if they're going to get to that level, teach them how to play the game in the same way you would teach someone how to be a, an architect or whatever. Don't teach them how to come up with a great drawing at 14, teach them how to be an architect when they're, 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 they're working, which may not be the best example, but you've got to teach people how to play when they're pros. And I think that was, and I thought the European way of doing that was proven to be successful. And you just have to look at the number of European players now in the NBA and, and, the, and the level of EuroLeague basketball and, and also the way that the, the, the US national teams and the way that college and uh, NBA basketball is developed um, because the bog standard thing used to be, you know, okay, let's pack the middle because that, that, that athletic college team won't shoot the ball well. Well, there's no difference now. These guys can shoot the ball better than most. And, uh, and I think that's European influences and the way that the US for a while started to lose internationally. You know, they, even when they had some of their better teams, you know, they go to Olympic games and lose in, in Athens. Um, that's when, you know, that's, that's a shock to the system and they're never going to lose twice in a row. They're always going to be players in. So that was why that was basically why. Last question on Barking Abbey. I mean, we could have a whole podcast on Barking Abbey, but, um, did you ever think that when you started it um, that you would end up with this this structure that there is now? Um, and we can talk about the pros and cons of that structure. I'm uh, exactly where you stand on this at this moment. You know, I think it's a pro. Um, it can it's helped the game. You can see the level of play has has got better. Of course, it would get better if everyone if there's a lot of kids that are actually playing every single day with multiple times a day and could have reasonable competition and more importantly the coaches also getting paid to coach um that did you ever believe that there could be a structure like that when you started or was it aspirational or you just just went with the flow at the start uh aspirational definitely um initially uh wasn't too concerned about apart from trying to help some other people set things up, wasn't too concerned about um, how that might be a structure that could be adopted um, because, you know, the cliched stuff of, you know, looking after your own business and controlling what you can control, et cetera. So it was as we wanted to be, we wanted to be comparable to some of those better junior programs in Europe. So, you know, when we hosted the uh, EuroLeague junior tournament and, and, and made the semifinal and when we, um, you know, and, uh, you know, when we ended up in our own tournament, taking the Studiantes to a, like a four-point game in a semifinal and stuff, um, and then, like six of their guys are playing pro basketball in the ACB now, it's like that That was the aspiration to be able to compete like that. Now I'd go as far, and at the time, I, I still believe that like it is in, I think, in our environment, everything in terms of development really should be club-based. I, I think, it, you know, and the BBL's got a structure now it could really plug things into the, the way that Lions are at the beginning to look at things and, and, and trying to develop a pathway and building on sort of relationships with Barkin Abbey, et cetera. 
Um, you only have to look across Europe to see the, the impact of having great club-based junior programs. Um, it has to be club-based. And if you've got an education partner to, 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 to integrate your education, great. But this isn't new, Tony. It's like, you know, Crystal Palace way back then and Roy Packham um, yeah, had, actually, great junior, had junior teams. They had junior teams. And every club, every club used to have to have a junior team. Yeah. I don't know who changed that rule. I don't know how they allowed that not to be the case. Someone did. Um, and but that's that's in the past. Every every BBL team should have a, a properly funded uh, junior because it's, it's an investment that would benefit them. Yeah, I mean that's a, sorry. Actually, I meant to meant to make that point. Um, I mean, so much from your aspiration and philosophy must be born out of what Crystal Palace was. Um, you know, I I was on. Uh, a phone call yesterday, and I, I I flat out said it to the person. I should speak to Steve Buckley, and um, I said to Steve, you know, the truthful fact is that when myself and Joe, um, you know, formed the London Towers Junior Program together, you know, we had a specific plan to basically, you know, blueprint the Crystal Palace Junior Programs and 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 how they meshed with them with the men's teams in those days. Um, and we wanted that kind of conveyor belt all the way through. Mm. Um, and, 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 and Roy was this kind of guy that we wanted to get to. And, and the last point I want to make on that, which you've already touched on, um, was that when we, when we coached those kids, we didn't just, we didn't coach the win. We were coaching. I, every day I used to tell these kids, it's not about today. It's not about next year. It's where you are in 10 years time. If you're playing on a national team and playing professionally in 10 years' time, we've done our job. Um, and that's why, you know, when, when, when the Great Britain Olympic team came and we had two or three players on that team and, you know, and so did Brixton, you can, you can mm. say, right, that was the vision and that was, that was accomplished there. Well, yeah, every, every great European team is, has their players, are, their teams are made up with players who've done, they've done great things as juniors and down to great coaches as juniors you, you, that's you know it, it's not one person it's the it's the it's the way that and that's an attitude for the player the player that's striving to you know to be at that level is is what the, the, those conversations that you would have had those conversations that you know joe and people would have had it's all about where they're going to be and and it's not just the great players as well. I mean, you take Joe Wick and win now. You know, Joe, Absolutely. when Joe, Joe came to, to Barkin and he was like the example of a great athlete and he just needed to know how to play. And Joe started late and, yeah. and he's a great pro now. I mean, it, well, it's, it's funny that the two of the longest serving BBL players now are Joe and Darius Defoe. Yeah. They both start. I mean, I think Joe started one year later or yeah. two years later than, than Darius, yeah. and they're, they're there. And, and look at how successful Darius has been and how successful Newcastle have been because of him yes. and because of his contribution. And, and, and Joe, it doesn't matter if Joe plays seven minutes or 17, 17 minutes or whatever he plays. As, as a leader at, uh, at, uh, at Lions, he is, and, and, and the same with Darius, they, they set a bar about not necessarily their, their sort of talent level, or both are, are good, are really high level players. It's like that's the atmosphere, the attitude, the leadership, et cetera, that any other kid coming onto that program looks at and goes, that's what I've got to be like if I want to be that like player. That's an investment for the club. And that's when 
I, I would say guys like you and I are going to sit down and go, that, that makes me feel good about the job we've done. That, and it's most of that work that Darius has done and that Joe has done, that's them. But we've sort of put the thing in place that, that's, uh, that's sort of encouraged and, and promoted and motivated them to do it. And that's a, as big a buzz as you can get. Um, let's go um, back, uh, like you said, back into the to the GB pro, pro, uh, GB situation. Um, you know, in am I right in saying two thousand seven eight that we they made the announcement? Oh, well, the first there was the announcement that uh, London would have the Olympics, and then GB was Great Britain mm. was reformed. Um, you were appointed head coach of the women's team. Um, talk about that that process, that experience, but also. Um, did you go in now, you're, you're an experienced coach, you've got all of the, um, you've got, you know, incredible knowledge, you know, the players are respecting you. Did you go in with a different philosophy on how you're going to coach that team? Or was it just, you know, your, your, your full principles were just like, just, just worn out? Nah, I, I think the, 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 the GB job in many ways, Although it was very pressurized, and although the aspiration level and the pressure to achieve was 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 very much um, really significant, um, I would hope if those players were asked, it was they were they were being put in a position where we were doing everything, whatever we were trying to do as coaches uh, was to try and put them in the in the, on the floor and be as confident as they could be. And we had to get over this hump of, well, we haven't been the team for a while. We haven't being successful. So we had to build that uh, we belong here type mentality. And we are, and I think that started with us. And I think if, if uh, especially on the women's side, uh, that mentality was helped by a number of like key players uh, who, who set the tone. But uh, my philosophy was pretty much that the, the, the players um, uh, were, were going to be the people that took GB to the Olympics. And I, and I, I, I can't say enough great things about the way those players applied themselves, especially in the first cup to get promotion. When in the first, the first two of the year of the two year cycle, starting from nothing, we had and in the same way that, that Chris had to with the men, uh, you had to put yourself at the end of that first, that first program in a position where you could qualify for this after the second year, because you knew it was going to be tough the first year, but you had to, give yourself the chance in the second year. So like going two and two in our first year and, and winning, you know, away in play in Estonia. Well, you know, people go, well, you know, Estonia, what's the big deal? Well, Estonia were already established and, and it, they were used to playing at that level and they were a good team and we had to, and we went away our first ever game and got a win. And that is, that was as big a win as any, forget the fact we went six and over the following year to qualify for the A division, winning away in Estonia um, was was as big a game as anywhere. And I, it, it's the coaching philosophy. Why it's always about making the best out of the talent you've got. And, and we had some great people who knew their strengths and their weaknesses. And ranging from a 16 year old Georgia Jones to a 30 plus year old Andrea Congreves, we had to get the best out of everybody. And the, and we we obviously did because we got the promotion. Mm -hmm. Without going into too much, like you know, detail and and coming up the past. I know you talked to me. I think Sam about it, but. Um, we, do do you think that we missed an opportunity both in the men's and the women's side to you know bring through 
the coaches that there, there wasn't the you know the, the fact that you know as of you know the people that were in the actual olympic game teams um there were i mean there was no british coach on the male side um that finally made the roster and then there was no one there was i mean vanessa and um uh, what's damien. damien damien you know yeah. damien had made it for the women's side what war and it, i mean obviously you know they they decided to not take you on to to fulfill the the whole of the journey. Um, what just just any 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 clear thoughts? You know, now looking back at it. Yeah, my clearest thought, apart from the absolute, you know, obviously the personal disappointment. Um, the clear thought is that, as I've said earlier on in this this discussion, I was really fortunate to come across some great coaches in all sorts of environments. So I think we ma massively missed an opportunity to have British coaches have access to that program. Now, whether that was working within it in a, in a particular way, um, because by, by just on the men's side in particular, 2012, we had a, a coaching staff with now two NBA head coaches on it, some NBA experience across the board in terms of the coaching side. And in 2013, we had no one left. Now we brought Joe Prince. He was a, is a great coach, great guy, really good guy, a great coach. He comes in and picks it up from scratch. It's almost like we restarted. And then even then, um, I think we, we, there was no balance check um, from the people understandably given a very specific task about trying to initially make sure that we got the spot for the home Olympics, but they were given a very specific task. There was no, there was nothing else going on that said, we need to make the most out of this going forward and we need to do something or put something in place that enables British coaches to really benefit from this experience. And that's not because of the coaches involved. Cause I know at that time in particular, Chris Finch beyond doubt and was really accessible to coaches. We sent, um, what Lloyd Gardner and, um, and Damien James went to some of the futures tournaments and uh, Kennedy rather went to the uh, future. So, and Chris was absolutely 100% accessible as a, as a coach to, to young British coaches. And we just didn't use that enough. No. And, and, I, and I think any momentum we built, we, and then if you look at the, the 2013 Eurobasket, big win over, uh, over Germany in a position where we're one game away from, and we're still picking with, with, with learning from scratch again. And I, and then that's something that, no other country does there's a succession program there's a a coach education program to coach national team because it's different as well as the technical side you, the, just the act just being around the national team is diff, different and so uh they everybody spent a lot of time putting a lot of resource into actually qualifying and no no one appeared in my opinion to spend enough time or enough resource into what happens after and trying to build a, a, a quality program so uh, the next, you know, big project that you've been involved with is the um, uh, the Barking Abbey London Lions. I mean, it, I'm assuming it was really it's Barking Abbey's women's team, and it's morphed into this London Lions situation. But seems to be an exciting situation. Obviously, you know, this year with you know the merging of those teams, the the team has been extremely strong. Talk about that project, just you know, really quickly, and um, how how you perceive it, and you know again how you've, you've gone about coaching that team okay um well we've we've 
over the last two, three years, we've done little bits and pieces with, uh, with Vince and the Lions. It was always Vince's uh, desire to, to, to do what every BBL team would do, I think, to have a women's program. But obviously, as, as, as everybody knows, you know, BBL basketball is it's an expensive business in this country. WBBL basketball, a lot of the costs are the same, only the salaries obviously are different. So obviously, with the investment that the 777 uh, partnership has brought to the, to the London Lions organization meant that uh, the conversations that um, Vince and I were having were, in, were, were just moved to a different level. And in, in so many ways, all the things you try to build with an overall program, like an academy, like age group teams, like players coming through, Barkin already had that. And now with the investment, and, and I have to say the, 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 the sort of uh, the aspiration and the foresight and the desire from the, the 777 uh, people, uh, we've now got, you know, what everyone else aspires to have or does have uh, in terms of a senior program. So we've, we've managed to um, put those two things together. There's still a lot of work to be done in terms of linking pathways straight into the the lines but on the women's side that link has already been there now our issue obviously with with bark and abby uh playing in the wbbl has been the the cost of uh bringing in older or import players to uh supplement uh the talent we have in the academy so we've been over the years we've been very fortunate um you know to have natalie stafford who started on the gb team who just happened to be in london to have uh, diana goranova who uh, made the step to come to London, et cetera. We were incredibly fortunate. Uh, and then the tie up with UEL that was useful to bring in some very good experienced players. So every now, every year or so we were, you know, we made a trophy final and before the WBBL started, we'd made a, uh, a championship final, et cetera. But it was very much around the recruitment uh, of our, our age group players. So now it's very much, we've got those age group players still, we've still got that talent, but now we're able to go into the marketplace and and try and bring in quality players into the WBBL. So this year, obviously, we've brought Kennedy Leonard in, and, and she ticks every box because she's British and able to play on the British national team. Really a real quality player. And having someone like that with that ability as a guard means everybody's better. Um, and then, obviously, bringing back uh, Shanice Norton, who is a former Barkin Abbey student, Chantal, Chantel Charles is a former Barkin Abbey student, that's the sorts of uh, model that lots of people talk about wanting to do, but now we're in a position to do it. So it, then it comes down to how well we manage it. In terms of how we approached it and, co and coach it, it's all those things we've been talking about earlier on. You go right back to, to, to Crystal Palace and, and what I was talking about in terms of Danny Palmer and building things around the way that um, he would teach and pressurize people, um, giving players the tools, et cetera. And then you go through the, you know, the Billy Mims part of my uh, I, my journey in terms of the offensive detail, then we try to merge those two things. So we try and play up-tempo. Uh, we try to uh, be aggressive with our defense. We try to generate a game that I think is more exciting in the women's game. And we were averaging, we were averaging nearly 80 shots a game. Um, and then, you know, we're having some exciting games. We just had a, obviously a tough loss, uh, a tough couple of losses with Sevenoaks and, and Leicester. Um, but that level of game is is what the WBBL needs to aspire to, and if if we if I can help that by the style of game we're putting on the floor, obviously now there's a there's a pressure to win, um, but without compromising on the trying to promote and develop British players to enable you to win. So very much like a a European model where you've got a number of homegrown players where you've got your basis, then you find some real quality 
uh, import players or, or players that are experienced and can really add and, and, and become key components. Um, one of the import players we've had it, added this year in terms of Cassie Breen is just a great shooter. So again, that also then raises the level of the younger players. Again, going right back to, to Crystal Palace where you have a, a Paul Stimson and a Nick Beck coming through, but they're on the floor with an Alton Bird and they're on the floor with uh, a Bob Roma and, and playing alongside Dan Lloyd and Pete Jeremich and those guys. And they, they became better players because of that. So trying to add to the coaching and having people alongside them means that we've got a mix that is very European in terms of club type scenarios, in terms of having that basis. Mm. Um, and aspiration wise, um, the aspiration is to keep developing players, but it's going to win. And triple um, seven want in the, in the same way as the women to, 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 to go on play at a European level. Um, and we've obviously seen British players, you know, Joe Leadham and, uh, and, and Temi Benle in particular, more recent, most recently, being very successful at, at a European level. Well, the aspiration has got to be playing players of that ilk in the WBBO and, and playing alongside quality players so that we can have a British team with British players and quality players of whichever nationality being successful in Europe, but playing out of, uh, of, uh, of London. And Based, yeah, like every European team, every European team does a lot of things with its defense, tries to make it very difficult, tries to take you out of where you want to be, mm. but also has players that have got the tools to make great decisions for themselves. So that's, that's yeah, this is there's not a lot of new things, Tony. As, no. as, as we, no, no. we it's trying to blend all those things and put them on the floor. And I think we've got the beginnings of making that happen. And then you need a quality group of coaches, it's not just about me, it's about uh. You know, I've got Dave, David Lavinia assisting me this year, which is a, a, a different. Uh, he's been working largely with our boys and Division One, etc., up until now. So that's another different aspect that we, we bring. We still need to uh, add coaches. We've got a young coach called Zach Meekins working with us, uh, and, and again, it's that, that throughput of coaches. So yeah. you, you've got to build a program, and that, yeah. that's that's the key for me. Just just one question on this on the WBBL. It, it, do, is it is it as strong as it's ever been? Do you think? Yes, this, this season? playing wise. Playing yeah, playing wise. wise. Oh, the depth. I think. I think it's very. Um, it's an interesting one because you've got new, new teams like Essex uh, Rebels who've got some great British players. Like, like Ashley Munns is a great. I think is a potentially a really, really good long-term professional playing in the WBBL. Uh, shoots the ball really well playing at Essex and Essex have beat Leicester this year. And I think that's, that's, a, that's a sign that the league is getting deeper. You've got a number, it's great to see. I've got a number of former Barking Abbey students playing. Chris Butler's brought Abby Lowe back and she's yep. playing at Newcastle. She's having a great season. Yeah. And I think that uh, that type of, that type of depth in the league is going to make the league a lot stronger. It's going to make the quality, and it's also going to make it very aspirational for British players to play. Mm. And I think the more Shanice Nortons and Chantel Charles that decide to play in the in the in the in the WBBL means that other players are not going to want to go and play in, in some leagues in, in Europe. They're going to want to come and play here. And the WBBL is a on court is a really quality is a, is a good quality product. Off court, I think we obviously need to spend uh, more time and effort and try and find money to promote the sport in a in a better way. And but I think yeah. the other the other great thing, Tony, in relation to some of the things we're talking talk about is the level of coaching 
you yeah. know, Chris Bunton's coached national team uh, as an assistant. You've got, you know, you know, Kenrick Lybert and Karen Burton at, Not- at Nottingham. Len, there's a lot of coaches that, really you know, like Len Bush has coached for years now and has coached national team. There's a lot of coaches now that are good, very good coaches. And that means the standard of the play on the, and then you, you've got to show up every night and prepare and, and, and try and go head to head with the opposing coach. And, and are you um, almost like full-time professional for that project or yeah. get it almost there? Yeah. I mean, yeah. pretty much. I mean, it, it, I think that's the way it's going to go this year because of the pandemic. And still, obviously, there's an academy to run, but we've got a really supportive school. We've got a really a group of good coaches like you know James Veer and, and Ricky Bullmore do a really nice job. Um, and James is vastly experienced. So, um Barkin's never just been about me as such. So, yeah, I think going forward, for that to happen, uh, you need full-time coaches and you need a coaching team uh, and all the support service needs to be there as well. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, let's move on um, to... I, I, I was thinking about this before. I don't know if there's a person that I've interviewed um, that has such a breadth of knowledge i mean people like coach collins i mean they definitely they have that full understanding but you've been in so many interesting you know spots you've been the great britain national team coach you've been the great britain performance director um you've been right at the bottom building the, the base and then all of the elite junior levels um so you've you've touched our sport in so many ways and and that comes now to um coaching you've always been the one of the biggest advocates of British coaching um, you pushed all kinds of coaches forward you've helped coaches you've never ever turned the situation down so where do you think we stand um, with the, the coaching fraternity and also coach education and coaching in in, in the UK moving forward uh, I think um, I think you'd agree I think definitely coach Collins would agree that one of the things that we really haven't developed enough is is that thing called a coaching fraternity um the efforts that mark danny and 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 uh, john collins put in to try to get the basketball coaches association moving forward um i think uh in a lot of other countries there's a significant amount of sharing from coaches mm. yet people are very much competitors um but attendance at things like clinics, uh, just conversations between coaches. Uh, it's one of the things we tried to develop in the short time I was the um, performance director in terms of getting people like Alan Keane and um, Ian McLeod, et cetera, access to um, other coaches. I mean, when you uh, had that spell as the, as the head coach of the national team, one of the things you and I talked about a lot was bringing in uh, junior age group coaches to national team sessions, having them work with the senior team or be around the senior team. So it generated that view that you were part of something that was a little bit bigger than yourself. And you didn't feel as though you were carrying an under 18 team, for example, and you were going to be judged by the win loss record. It, it, there's more to it in terms of you're part of a process that brings a player from 14 all the way, uh, hopefully all the way through to playing with a senior team. That fraternity is um and, and I, you know, I i do have to say i think for a long time now um it's something that that the one if you look at other countries it's something that the federation doesn't necessarily have to do but it that has to enable mm. and it has to generate the the, the support to make it happen we, we spend a, a lot of money 
um, in a sport that always says it doesn't have a lot of money. We spend a lot of money with a lot of, with a lot of development things, a lot of initiatives. Not enough of those are with, um, are with coaching. And uh, I think also that um, I think now uh, BBL clubs, WBBL clubs and some, and some of the bigger Division One clubs have got a real pool of coaching resource. Uh, and the, uh, and I think you look at the number of British coaches now coaching in the in the in the BBL, uh, which is going up every year. Some people will say that's a oh they don't want to spend money on a fight. No, I think it's more like that they when when team owners look at some of the people available to coach. Um, there's there's a, there's a lot of good British coaches that are actually putting on the floor some very very good things. And you and, and right at the top of the game. Um, you know, you were coaching the senior men's team and, and you just look at the job that Mark Stootle's done, stepping in and being, okay, uh, he, he's called the interim coach, but he's basically, no, taken, he's basically taken that team in a very difficult set of circumstances with not a lot of resource and actually um, he's qualified for Eurobasket. Now, you know, I think that's, that, you know, that, that's almost been underplayed um, to, to too big an extent. Um, I know the players because I'm still in contact with you know, most, if not all of those players really respect the level of job that he's done and understand the difficult, difficult there's in. And that's not a, a knock at all on, on Nate because Nate's circumstance meant he hasn't been able to be there, but mm. it's a situation that um, uh, I, I just don't think we value still don't value uh, coaching uh, to the level it should be valued. And therefore, you, you wouldn't work in a commercial private company and have your senior managers just sort of part-time coming in there and again, just to have a few words with people and hope they can do the job. They would be making that company better. And that's what coaches are doing with programs. They, they've got to work with people continuously. And, and it's not a cost. It's an investment. I think it's an investment that we don't. Um, and, I, and, I, and I think the the impact, uh, some of the things that Alan Keane's doing with um, sharing information, some of the things that um, well, things like this uh, do in terms of sharing information. Other countries are they're not technically for, much further down the road than we are, but they are so much further down the road in terms of the value they put on coaching and the value and the way they invest in it and uh, the way that they, there's always a succession plan, there's always there's a pool of people you can call on. And uh, for too often, um, people like John Collins and, and Mark Dunham almost like voices crying out for, for coaches. That, and there's not that culture, but and it's not engendered with coaches that they need to engage in that as well. So I think the coaches themselves, I think now there's, I think we're at a stage now where there are people thirsty for knowledge and thirsty to be part of that and wanting to be part of that. So uh, yeah, I think I think in so many ways the, the the investment in coaching now would reap a lot of a lot of rewards. Just as I say, look at the number of British coaches in the in the BBL. Okay, great stuff. Um, okay, three rapid fire questions. Uh, favorite all time basketball coach? Yeah, when you when you told me this, oh, um, I love watching Sergio Scariolo coach a national team, but I, I just think that when you've got as much talent as he has, but then you pay so much attention to detail. I, I love, just love the way his, his, his teams play and function. I love the way he relates to players. Okay, great. Um, favorite 
drill that you're running either at the moment or have done. Yeah, I know a thousand drills. I go back. I I, I go right back to. Uh, I watched. Uh, I asked Danny Palmer one time. You know, I need a footwork drill, and he gave me a drill that I think there's every piece of footwork in it. Uh, so it's like an L drill where you know your L cut, your V cut. There's the pass in it. There's a finish in it. And it's um, so um, you know, it's just footwork and basics. Sometimes. Pe- it's a pet hate of mine, Tony, that people can't go and look for the big, big answer, the big, oh. big offense. It's, you know, it, at the end of the day, if you, if you can cut properly and get open, if you can pass properly, then you can run anything. And so a very simple L drill where you run an L cut and a V cut and a, a jump stop and a reverse pivot all in the same drill. Every, awesome. every kid gets better every, every time they run the drill. Yeah, great stuff. And then uh, lastly, your favorite uh, go-to saying or statement <laughs> <laughs> that you say all the time. Well, if you ask, if you ask the, if you ask the players at, at Lions at the moment, it would be, uh, can we please, you know, can we play we defense, not me defense? Um, uh, is the latest one, but okay. uh, like it. It's because you know we get so into playing one-on-one defense and forget the fact that we're supposed to be forcing it to somewhere and everyone else. Yeah, it's that that at the moment that's the. But I like it. Yeah. Too too many too many years for too many phrases. When you when you put that one, I'm like Jesus. Where does that start and stop? But I don't. For what's the phrase I say most at the moment? And that's it. We play too much me, not 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 enough we on defense. So love it. Okay, coach. Um, I really appreciate, you know, the time, um, you know, we could go for hours upon hours because, you know, you're so eloquent in, in almost all your answers and, and so much, we you know, bore history. people time. Come on now, <laughs> bore people. No, it's a really, We'd have a good time, but no one else would. <laughs> I really, really appreciate your time. Um, hope that uh, you can have that continued success with the Lions and Barking Abbey um, and any other direction, um, you know, that you take yourself and, and uh, I hope that at some stage that you are back in control of the uh, the sport, because especially from a performance side, because I think that um, we need we need someone like your direction um, and understanding of all of those facets. So thank you for being on time out today. I uh, appreciate it, Tony. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to another episode of Timeout. You can now find all of our episodes on iTunes and Spotify. So please like, subscribe and let us know who you'd like to hear from in a future episode.